Okay, Shale, I'm going to list off some personal transportation options, and I want you to give me the first reaction that comes to mind, all right? <laughs> okay, let's do it. Hoverboards. Give me one. You're not worried about the fire risk? Oh, well, oh, you mean the, those kinds of hoverboards. I'm thinking the Back to the Future style. <laughs> no, don't give me one of those ones. I, I, want, the, I want the one that, that they had in Back to the Future. Segways. Too early for its time. Cross-country roller skis. Uh, what? You don't know cross-country <laughs> roller skis? You know, like the long roller blades where you can train for cross-country skiing? Oh, that's what those are? Actually, those look kind of cool. Yeah, they I go mean, fast. in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. I see people on bike paths with those once in a while. Sure. Yeah, I'm into that. One-wheeled electric skateboards. Uh, I see too many of those in San Francisco. If you if you ride a one-wheeled electric skateboard from your house uh, in the in the marina to your office in Soma in San Francisco along the Embarcadero, then don't. Spring-loaded stilts. Spring-loaded stilts. You know, I went through a period, <laughs> strangely enough, as a child where I was trying to trying to learn to stilt, um, <laughs> which I got okay at actually, but never had the spring-loaded ones. That would have been more fun, probably, and like terribly dangerous, I imagine. Well, if any of these options become the next hot thing in last-mile urban transport, we'll be sure to talk about it. But this week, we're sticking to what's hot now. Bikes, electric bikes, and scooters that are suddenly hitting city sidewalks en masse. First, though, a quick word about the sponsors who bring you this show. Do you want to share in the prosperity created by the sun? Join Wonder Capital's investment platform to invest alongside individuals and Wall Street banks in large-scale solar projects. According to GTM Research, Wonder is the leading commercial solar financing firm in the U.S. To invest or to finance your next commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com financing. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com financing. And if you're a developer looking for the highest quality components to drive down costs and boost energy production, there's only one place to turn, Shoals Technologies Group. The company is always innovating, always simplifying, always working to make solar and storage projects the absolute best they can be. For the top balance of systems tech, go to Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from green tech media. Hello, welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, the editor-in-chief of GTM. Shale Khan is the VP of strategy at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shale. Hello, Stephen. Well, we've both been noticing something. All of a sudden, bikes and scooters are popping up everywhere in our respective cities, beckoning us to ride them. And Emily Warren is the Senior Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Lime, one of the companies leading the push for bikes, electric bikes, and electric scooters in our cities. And we're going to talk about how this form of ride sharing just seemed to emerge overnight and uh, where it's going to bring us in terms of last mile transportation. Emily, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Now, Emily has some pretty deep roots in the new-ish shared transport space. She was a very early employee at Lyft, where she directed the policy team. Uh, more recently, Emily was head of autonomous and urban mobility at the World Economic Forum. So she knows the mobility landscape well. And that's why we've invited her here today, because you, Shale, have been thinking a lot more about mobility and last mile transportation. So what's on your mind? Yeah, you said at the beginning in the intro that that you and I have been noticing these things emerge in our cities. I think the difference between you and me is that you've been noticing them from the sidewalk as you watch them fly by you. I've been noticing them with the wind in my hair 
as I ride them all over the streets of San Francisco. Oh, you're a customer. I'm very much a customer, or I was. I mean, this is something we should talk about. I was, I was very much a customer of, of both Lime and, and its principal competitor, Bird, the, the shared e-scooters in San Francisco, which were awesome until they disappeared overnight from the streets, which is something that we can talk about later. But here's the, the broader context and the reason that I think it's interesting for us to talk about on this show. Um, almost 60% of vehicle trips in the United States are less than six miles. In other words, most of the, the trips that we take in cars currently, we take for pretty short distances. And many of those, of course, are in urban environments. And that's just been the way that it is for a really long time, despite there being public transportation uh, in cities of varying degrees of effectiveness. We have a ton of cars driving a ton of short trips in cities, and that has had all sorts of knock-on effects, ranging from traffic, of course, to local air pollution, to things you don't think about as much, such as there being just a truly incredible amount of urban land that we utilize for parking for example. Uh, so that's just been the way that it is for a long time. But in the past few years in particular, I would say maybe even in the past 18 months, if you want to talk specifically about scooters, uh, there's been this rapidly growing popularity of alternatives that range from ride sharing, you know, the sort of Ubers and Lyfts of the world, which are still vehicles traveling for the most part. But um not necessarily being driven by their owners or not necessarily being utilized by their owners rather to bike sharing to now scooter sharing. Um, and this is not even to mention the innovations that we're starting to see in the public transit system. And I think there's a, a couple of things that are important to know about basically all of these new modes of transportation, or at least where they're all heading, which is that um, one, they are generally fleets. So the vehicles are in fleets with a central owner uh, and second, they tend to be electric. Certainly all of these shared to the extent that they have motors, um, as Emily mentioned, the bikes and the scooters, these are electric. So that means if we sort of draw that path forward, it means pretty direct impact, not only on cities and how they're designed, but also on their energy infrastructure. Uh, it also means because they're fleets that there is a measure of central control that can be exerted over their operations and things like their charging patterns. So if we think this is a real trend, there's a lot that is going to come out of it. Um, big questions about the future of energy, the future of cities, and the future of transportation. So uh, I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. Emily, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to kind of give us the context of what's been happening over the past couple of years. I'm, I'm indoctrinated into it in San Francisco, but of course, most people don't live in San Francisco. So if you're, if you're not, you know, in a city where you're surrounded by these things all the time, give us an introduction to what has suddenly emerged in certain cities in the United States and how it has been uh, how it has been treated by the cities. Yeah, happy to do it. It's been a fascinating time, and I think I might even take it a little bit farther back than the arrival of companies like Lime um, back several years ago when we saw ride sharing come on the scene. I think prior to that, the set of transportation offerings that most people had access to in cities had been static for a really long time. We had buses and we had trains and we had personal cars and maybe a few different flavors of each of those things. And then you know, we'd started to see some early examples, of course, with car sharing, like Zipcar, even peer-to-peer -peer car sharing, and then station-based bike sharing of, a, of different options coming on the scene 
But the cycles of innovation were slow and the uptake was also slow. We weren't really seeing those kinds of products break through into the mass consciousness and reach scale where they could start to really affect people's behavior and car ownership and outcomes in cities. So what happened with ride sharing, and I, I remember it well because I was there as it happened in 2012 when peer-to-peer -peer ride sharing first came on the scene and Lyft and Uber and uh, another company called Sidecar that doesn't even exist anymore emerged as this new type of more accessible on-demand transportation that you could navigate um, with an app, uh, have the driver come to you and pick you up wherever you were with a very high degree of reliability, uh, get you where you needed to go, all by leveraging this peer-to-peer -peer resource of everyday people driving their own cars. And at the time, people really thought we were crazy. You know, they thought getting in cars with strangers, you know, this sounds really scary or it sounds like something no one would actually do. And, you know, of course, all of us now have completely normalized that mode of transportation. It's become ubiquitous. Can I make a confession? Yeah. I, I, I thought you were crazy. I mean, I was, you know, I wrote some early stories where, you know, I we we kind of wrung our hands about the insurance policies and about safety problems. And, you know, all those things are perfectly legitimate. And there are all sorts of challenges associated with ride sharing. Uh, we, we may get into those, but I, I definitely like had that initial reaction myself. And it took, you know, months or a year for me to truly realize the, the potential. Yeah. And that first wave, I think, of on-demand transportation innovation has now prepared the, the public and the market to accept a much broader variety of transportation modes. And so as we've seen those companies reach scale over the last several years, they've now opened the door for a... a whole bunch of additional kinds of options that are coming on the scene. And frankly, I don't think any of us expected that scooters were going to be the thing. And that's what really what's so fascinating about it is that it's counterintuitive innovation in the same way that ride sharing was. Um, you know, everybody thought this was something that mainstream folks wouldn't do, and yet it's become ubiquitous in a short time. Uh, similarly, scooters a year ago would have sounded like you know, child's play, like a toy that we were used to seeing little kids use, not like something that was going to become very quickly in indispensable in a lot of big cities. And what we're observing now is that that particular mode of transportation is resonating with people in a far more dramatic way than even I could have imagined. And with it, we're seeing that there's a blossoming of a whole bunch of different flavors of these micromobility options. And I think it's only the beginning. Emily, you said that the fact that we had had the Uber and Lyft sort of revolution has readied us for this much wider array of new micromobility options. I think I'm sure that's true to some degree, but I still think that, you know, my, my sense of it is that there are basically two kinds of people as it relates to the the e-scooters. There are those sort of like myself who've been indoctrinated into the cult of them and, you know, have tried them and love them and discovered why they're such a great mode of urban transportation. But then people who haven't, I think, at least my experience has been still think that the whole thing is kind of crazy or it's like a lark for tech bros to scoot around cities in their Patagonia vests on their way to blue bottle coffee or something like that. Um, do you think that it's different this time and the adoption rate is faster or will be faster than it was for for ride sharing or should we expect the same kind of pattern 
It actually is faster. It's dramatically faster. And you can see that in the numbers that have been released already from companies like ours regarding the pace at which we've achieved our ride milestones. So um, in a very short period of time, in our first year of operation, Lime achieved our 6 million ride mark. For context, I believe Lyft, um, it took about maybe 14 months, 13 or 14 months to get to our, our millionth ride. And the same was true with Uber. They, you know, they did not reach that milestone nearly as fast. The pace of city launches is far faster. Um, so, in the case of of ride sharing, it, it took a couple years for ride sharing to reach their first few dozen cities. In the case of of Lime, we're already in over eighty markets and have already expanded internationally. So, let me tell you why I think that's happening. Frankly, this product is more accessible for more people to use more often than ride sharing. It's much more affordable. It is something that people can actually put into their daily use case. Uh, they can they can use it for just a few dollars and therefore you know make it a routine. And when a transportation mode becomes something that is um, easy enough, available enough, and cheap enough to be used every day and get baked into people's habits, it has a very significant potential for rapid growth. And ride sharing has never been able to become affordable enough to to reach that threshold of adoption and has actually been very reliant on you know, late night, uh, weekend, and entertainment-related uh, business to, for its growth in a way that you know, our uh, products at Lime you know, have not had to, had to rely on those kinds of uh, recreational trips. Right. And so I think the fact that the uptake has been so fast has not obviously gone unnoticed by companies like Uber and Lyft. So l- let's talk about what they're doing and what it tells us about sort of who's going to own this future urban mobility world. So Uber uh, bought Jump, which is a shared bike company, and invested in your company, Lime. Lyft, meanwhile, bought Motivate, which is also a shared bike company, and applied for its own permit in San Francisco to to operate scooters. So obviously, both Uber and Lyft, the two giants in the ride-sharing game, are expanding their horizons to become multimodal and want to be doing all of this. What, What do you think that that tells us about of how all these different modes of transportation within cities are going to work with each other ultimately. I think what Uber and Lyft have experienced in cities in the last 18 months in particular has been a, a significant backlash. Frankly, cities are concerned about the number of ride-sharing vehicles that are on the road. And now that they've started to see them at such high volumes, are putting pressure on those companies to come up with more sustainable options that don't contribute to congestion and are able to be more harmonious with the city's goals around reducing greenhouse gas emissions and supporting the use of public transit. So in response to those kinds of concerns, the companies you know, feel that they need to make efforts to um, be responsive to what cities are asking for. And then frankly, you know, it's smart business decision because we're seeing the market um, showing a very strong response to micro mobility options. And any shared mobility company would be silly not to pay attention to that and to try to be part of it. Um, I think it remains to be seen whether the public benefits more from having consolidation in that industry and seeing a few small shared mobility companies own the entire stack of transportation options or whether the public benefits from competition and you know supporting a, a robust ecosystem of operators 
frankly, the relationship that companies like Lime have with cities is very, very different than what we experienced in the ride-sharing industry. And part of that is just because of the nature of the business. In micromobility, when you have scooters and bikes that have to be parked on public space, they're on sidewalks, when they're positioned waiting to be used, they're operating on bike lanes, um, they are visible in a way that ride-sharing cars were not. And um, that requires a very close partnership between companies like ours and cities. Um, I I think that means that cities have an opportunity for influence and to, you know, to shape and protect the public interest around the rollout of these technologies to a greater degree than they may have had um, in the case of ride sharing. And, you know, for that reason, Lime has really prioritized transparency with our data. We've prioritized building product features that are responsive to the concerns of cities. Um, and I think, frankly, the ride-sharing companies have a little bit of catching up to do in uh, learning how to enter that kind of a collaborative and responsive partnership um, rather than being able to so entirely set the terms of their operations the way that they have done with their traditional business. Are you a solar developer having trouble securing financing for your commercial solar projects? Well, our sponsor, Wonder Capital, can help. Since 2015, Wonder Capital has financed over 85 megawatts of small commercial solar projects across the U.S. In fact, they're focusing on financing 100 kilowatt to 5 megawatt solar projects, including those for nonprofits, community solar developments, virtual net metering, and PV plus storage systems. Wonder's sophisticated software platform means that solar developers can receive loan terms within two business days in a contract for a project within two weeks. To find out how Wonder Capital can help finance your next commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com slash financing. We're also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a leading producer of balance of system solutions for solar and battery storage. Shoals, it invents simple. That's its slogan. Because it doesn't matter what the product is, a combiner box, junction box, inline fuse, monitoring system, Shoals makes it with the highest performance standards in a drive toward elegance. Shoals has been serving the solar industry since 1996, and after years of exponential growth, this American company maintains the same passion for quality and innovation. If you're looking to step up your game in solar and storage, contact Shoals. You can find out more at Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. Okay, so you have to work closely with cities. You're opening up your data, but you're walking this fine line here between being careful and transparent and deploying quickly because there's a lot of competition. So, you know, you're taking a page from the ride-sharing playbook and trying to get these uh, transportation modes, these scooters and bikes and e-bikes out on the streets and sidewalks as quickly as possible, right? And and then, you know, work with the cities over how best to implement them. Um, at the same time, We've seen experiences like uh, that of San Francisco, where just overnight, a bunch of companies deployed scooters everywhere on the sidewalks, and it angered a lot of people. There was social media backlash. Um, there was backlash from city officials, and then the scooters disappeared very quickly. So talk about that tension between wanting to get these devices, these personal transport modes out as quickly as possible and not wanting to cause that kind of backlash. It's an incredibly difficult line for a technology company to walk. And I experienced this both in the ride sharing context and now again with Lime. And 
I think there is a need for companies to be proactive in approaching cities and to try to find opportunities to demonstrate their technology. It's much less helpful if a company shows up unannounced and the city doesn't know who's operating on their streets, um, what the you know the characteristics of that transportation option are, and how to interact with that company to make sure that the public interest is protected. So we try really hard not to put cities in that position while still um, challenging them to act quickly, you know, asking them to embrace this option for at least a small demonstration that will allow us to show what our technology can do and give the public the opportunity to experience it so that they can say whether it's something they want in their community. Would you say that it's been a, a learning curve even over the the one year of operation of Lime in that regard? San Francisco is, is probably a good example of this where, as, as at least as I experienced it and as far as I understand it, basically the, the scooters, dockless scooters arrived pretty much overnight in significant volume in the city of San Francisco and then uptake was super fast since then. But then at some point there was this backlash that Stephen alluded to ranging from the city to, I mean, there are even a couple of instances of people, there's a people piled up a bunch of scooters in front of a Google bus that like got wrapped in with the complaints about, about Google buses and the gentrification. Of it's a of form of performance art at this yeah. point in San Francisco to, totally. you know, it's like a burning man sculpture, uh, you know, taken to a <laughs> exactly. new level. A good timing. It's burning man this week. Um, but you know, then the result was San Francisco, the city of San Francisco basically said, okay, we're taking all of these off the street and we're going to go through a permitting process, which is supposed to wrap up um, this week, as I understand it, or at least they're supposed to announce the results of it. So you had a ton on the streets. You had to pull them all off the streets overnight. And then now you're competing for a permit that you'll hopefully get. It, that presumably is not the process that you want to repeat in other cities. So how, how has it sort of changed how you might launch in new cities? The city of San Francisco tends to operate differently than most cities. So I, w I will say that our experience there has been unique and we've been continuing to move forward in a lot of other cities around the country while San Francisco has been taking an extended pause from the benefits of, of electric scooters. We have many thousands of riders in San Francisco who are excited to be able to use Lime again, and we hope that they'll have that opportunity. I like how you put um, that, an extended pause from the benefits of electric scooters. <laughs> I mean, I will tell you that I absolutely am one of those thousands. I was, I discovered that riding a, a scooter was both the most fun and actually the most efficient way for me to get to meetings within the city. Just, you know, it's cheaper, it's faster, more, it was more reliable when there were a lot of them. And so I, I really felt there, I feel their absence in the city right now. Not to not to sell for you too much, but yeah. Once you experience it, you realize that there's a gap there, right? Like there's, it's possible to provide a better option that doesn't cause traffic. It's actually quicker because you can skip traffic and go in the bike lane, and you're not, you know, contributing to the kinds of externalities that happen when you have more cars on the road. Um, now that I've professed my love for shared scooters, I will tell you the one thing that irked me a little bit about my experience with them, which is that when, when you take a Lime ride, or at least when you do in San Francisco, uh, after you finish the ride, you get a little notification um, on your mobile device that tells you how many pounds of, of greenhouse gases you saved. Um, I'm, I'm curious where that calculation comes from. One of the reasons that it irked me is that I'm not entirely sure I'm replacing 
rides in vehicles with my my uh, scooter ride every time. I know some of the rides that I took on scooters, you know, I might have alternatively walked or I might have taken a bike. So I'm curious about this idea that every time you ride a shared electric scooter, you are saving greenhouse gases. I, I wonder whether that's not always true. Yeah, absolutely. So I am, um, first of all, kudos to you for being enough of a nerd to geek out on that question. <laughs> You're definitely on my wavelength because I actually had the same question the first time I used Lime and I asked our data team about it. And that calculation is based on kind of a weighted um, expectation of mode shift. Um, so what that means for the non-nerds among us is that, you know, we know that whenever someone takes a Lime trip, that you know, some of the people taking that trip might have walked otherwise, in which case there's not a greenhouse gas savings. Uh, they might have driven a car otherwise, in which case there's a big greenhouse gas savings, really, really big. And they might have, you know, taken a Lyft or Uber otherwise, which also represents a big savings um, or something in between, like taking a, a public transit mode. And we can assign greenhouse gas values to all of those different other modes and we can kind of weight our expectation um, based on the proportion of people that we think are shifting from those different modes to Lyme and make our calculation that way. Um, so it's sort of a, an average across all trips of what we would expect that to be. And I think there is definitely room for us to learn more and get more and more accurate about those um, assessments of mode shift, uh, as well as, of course, like downstream questions like um, like energy, right? And all of these other kinds of more supply chain oriented assessments of carbon impacts, which I don't think today are contemplated in that calculation. And I would love for, for us to get there with that. So uh, we'll continue to try to refine that the more information that we get. So have you heard about anybody. I mean, the, you know, one of the things with electric cars, obviously, is there's a, a huge conversation going on around impacts on the grid, um, smart charging and and timing charging to align with when the grid needs it the most, and looking at the potentially massive, especially local impacts that electric vehicle charging will have on elect the electric infrastructure um, and the build out that will be required. Have you heard similar conversations as it pertains to electric bikes or electric scooters? That really hasn't started to loom large for us yet. I think in part because the size of battery that we're talking about with an electric scooter is frankly minuscule compared to a car. So it actually would probably take dozens of electric scooters to add up to a single vehicle. And it's serving you know a lot more people with the same battery capacity as one personal car. Um, that is, though, something that you know, we'd love to be uh, you know keeping our eye on in the future, focusing on how we can be part of the solution for encouraging more sustainable energy sourcing across the entire grid on which we will rely along with other power users. Yeah, I think that's right. The you're right that the the battery capacity for a single electric scooter is is you know, orders of magnitude smaller than it is for a, a single electric vehicle. And I think we're going to end up with unless I'm wrong about this, we're going to end up with way less of them in cities because they are shared and dockless and not owned by individual people. Um so, you know, I think the on a relative basis scooters and bikes will have a far smaller impact on the grid than 
than cars will as they go electric. Uh, nonetheless, you know, there may be some opportunities, especially because as you said, there's sort of the, you can, you can optimize for charging at certain times of the day. You can optimize for charging in certain locations. And so when you get critical mass, you know, I think there's going to be a point where there are opportunities to interact in a manner that benefits the grid and potentially could be monetized. Absolutely. I think there are incredible opportunities associated with shared fleets generally, whether they be cars or other types of vehicles um, for optimizing um, charging and and power use compared to personally owned vehicles, because you're able to have a kind of a central intelligence um, run by a platform that can help make decisions about where to deploy vehicles, where to provide incentives for them to be um, moved and charged, and even create infrastructure opportunities where that charging can occur over time. I think that's something that would be really interesting for us to see as well, so that you know, not all the chargers needed to be charged at night and could actually be be positioned to places where they could be charged during the day. I think we'll see iteration on that moving forward, especially as we start to see infrastructure stepping up that can help us along the way. I just thought up the title for the next buzzword panel at a green tech media conference, micromobility, the next technological evolution in demand response and demand management. Oh, sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's up my alley. We'll throw in some blockchain. We'll throw in, you know, uh, virtual power plants and... AI uh, demand energy management systems and we'll just toss it all together into a buzzword sandwich. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I I am always amazed at um my transition. I was somewhat skeptical of ride sharing for a variety of reasons until I actually tried it and until I wasn't skeptical and it's almost impossible for me to imagine a world without uh car sharing now and I think that the same is going to be true in this space. Shale, I know you're convinced you're actually a customer you've been riding those scooters. Are you convinced that micro mobility is the term we should be using? <laughs> I I still can't hear the term micromobility without thinking of a tiny person riding around cities. So um, <laughs> it's possible that I'm going to hear it enough that I'm going to get over that. But uh, no, I'm not convinced that's the term we're going to use forever. I think I think there's going to be a backlash on that term. I just don't know what the next one's going to be. It sounds like uh, there's still room for debate on that one, right, Emily? Oh, definitely. I love to compete over terminology. So maybe we'll hold a contest and see who can come up with the best catch-all term for this variety of little vehicles. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, Maybe the next time we talk to you, we'll have a different term. Who knows? But this space will certainly evolve considerably. Uh, Emily Warren is the Senior Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Lime. She is the former director of the policy team over at Lyft, and she was head of autonomous and urban mobility at the World Economic Forum. Emily, thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. And if you want to subscribe to this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Uh, anywhere you get your shows or grab us our RSS feed there and integrate it into the app of your choice. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is always so helpful. Give us a rating and review on Stitcher as well. Hit us up on social media. Are you using these micro-mobility options? What do you think of the term? What do you think of how they're working in our cities today? What do you think of the business models? We want to hear from you. So hit us up, uh, Shale, myself, and the uh, Interchange account there. And we'll catch you next time with Shale Khan. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.